I wanna wish you a Merry Christmas from the bottom of my heart. <laughs> yes, Sean. Uh, wait, it's recording like on the left hand. Does that matter if it's not stereo? It doesn't really, does it? What we'll do is we'll 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 John Lennon it. We'll just double track it. So we'll get you to say exactly the same thing for for the hour, but you know, and then we'll double track it. I love that. That's what we'll do. Anyway, I'll do my intro and then off we go. Just what is it that you want to do? You know, building a music playlist is hard enough, let alone the perfect festival. How are you guys doing? But that is exactly what we've asked some of the most fantastic and interesting people I know to do. And the result? One, two. It's all lols, backstage festivals, goss, and ridiculously good music recommendations from this point on, really. I'm Sean Keaveney, your host, and give it up for the lineup. <laughs> Robert Elms emerged from the scene. <laughs> And he and he said, you know what? It's, it's all right. It's all right. You're forgiven. And then he was he was off on his boogie board again. <laughs> Maybe that's what I was looking for. Thank you. Sometimes people in this business of show are howling chasms of needy solipsism, whereas others seem to have a slightly deeper aspect. And so it is with our next fantasy festivale on the lineup ostensibly a musician, a great guitarist, a singer, a songwriter, a band member of one of the best UK bands of the last 20 years, the Maccabees. That's a given. That's your BFH, your bus fare home. But on top of that, he's a label boss, a cricket fanatic, a film composer, a podcaster extraordinaire, tips please. And he's written a memoir of cricket, music, love, loss, purpose. It is Felix White, ladies and gentlemen. Sean, I missed you, man. Thank you. It's been a little while, hasn't it? It's been too effing long, is, is what it's been, Felix. Um, I, there's too much to go at here. I must warn the listener that, <laughs> okay. uh, the, 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 you yeah. know, we could, I could easily do three or four hours here. So I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to, the, the, there'll be a lot of pinwheeling around. There won't be much context. There'll be, you know, a vault fast here and there and tonally it will change. And I apologize for that. For instance, I've got to mention, you are a podcaster extraordinaire. Tay Lenders is huge. Mm -hmm. It's a huge thing. Is it a huge thing? I guess, yeah, Tail Enders started four years ago and it was just off the back of the Maccabees breaking up and Greg James knew that I loved cricket and it was a sort of conversation we used to have at, at festivals, funnily enough, of things, you know, when you know someone who likes cricket, you find each other and you have the chat and you don't know anything about each other's lives other than that and then you leave each other. So me and Greg had that kind of relationship and he said, oh, what are you up to now? Like, do you want to, I think it was in the spirit of like, we should give Felix something to do. So we, we decided we'd do this podcast with Jimmy over in Australia. And I thought it was just going to be six podcasts talking about the ashes. And I thought it was going to be a serious cricket podcast, actually. But a few shows in, a Bristolian shoe salesman phoned into the show called Matt, who claimed to be the distant relative of Sachin Tendulkar, even though he didn't know who he was. And for people who don't know, Sachin Tendulkar is like god of cricket and the most famous man in India. And that sort of spun the show out into yeah. like a sort of left field detective series about is Matt really related to Sachin Tendulkar? <laughs> and we're here um, four years later in like very, like very non-cricket based territory with tailenders. But it's been a big thing in my life. It's so great. And, and the thing is, it's a bit like the book really, which we'll touch on as well. It's sort of about cricket. But cricket seems to be about life. That's the thing. Cricket's an allegory yes. for life. Music yes. is life. 
and it's all in there. You know, you're playing Hammersmith Apollo for crying out in loud. I mean, it's like you've substituted being a rock star in the conventional sense to being a rock star through podcasting. It's quite funny. And, and, yeah, and weird, obviously yeah. I want to try and replicate your success in the world of podcasting and become a huge <laughs> star myself. Oh, well, I'm sure you'll far surpass it, mate. I don't. I think um, one of the things that's, that has really been amazing about Tailenders actually is, compared to the Maccabees, is how flippant it is. So when we started doing it, I thought that the stuff that was actually just before the show was just chat before the show. And when I listened to it, that was the programme. <laughs> uh, and, it's, and it's really taught me that people like, people engage with something that's real, not too forced, you're there with them. That's been so different to the Maccabees where it was like this sort of, amazing thing but everything's got to be as perfect as it can be just that kind of being at ease with everything's been a really nice thing to learn about putting stuff into the world if that makes sense it does a couple of quick things uh felix navidad do you get that a lot at this time of year i actually get it never weirdly oh, oh well there you go you can have that one that, thank um, you very much what we've got to do is we've got to we're going to create a, a fantasy festival five acts living or dead but we need to put it somewhere in the world. So we need, a, mm. we need a venue. Where do you think you would like to put it? Okay, well, this is an interesting one because I, the thing that you might expect me to say and people, have, when I do music things, is like something crickety. <laughs> but the first point I'd like to make there is that cricket, even though I've sort of done it, cricket and music, when they try and get together, especially when cricket tries to incorporate music into its thing, is a total fucking disaster and there's never be anything good about it and cricket has this obsession with being cool or like if we play pop music and let fireworks off the kids all like the pied piper come running towards cricket grounds so the first point i want to make is that i'm not going to try and incorporate any aspects of cricket into this festival in terms of where it's going to be this i've had this weird thing like in the last during lockdown you know your head goes somewhere that's safe or where you want to be and it might not even necessarily be somewhere that you've been before. Mm. And my thing has been to the sea or to, mm. to a lake, yeah. to open space. Having that in mind, one thing I sort of daydreamed about was me and a few mates, literally a couple of weeks after the Maccabees broke up and I was just proper spun out, we went to Oban and Isle of Mull because I had three things in my life I wanted to tick off <laughs> before I died, I told them. And one of them was looking a whale in the eyes. I think I've looked in a blowhole once or twice, but I've not managed to catch its eye. But have you? did you get to do it? <laughs> we, um, uh, no, we, no, we didn't do it at all. But we went to open with the mission that I was going to tick off one of the things that I wanted to complete before I died, which was looking away. And because I heard at one point, if you get that moment of recognition with you and a whale, it's like spiritual enlightenment. And you're yeah. off on your next course. And I was thinking, that's yeah. what I need after Maccabees. I need a whale to surface from fucking Oban. Look at me. And it will tell me through its eyes where I'm headed to next. But we went to, um, we went on an hour long whale looking trip where they obviously tell you you're going to see whales when you're clearly not. And we came back <laughs> in silence, pretty dejected. But we had an amazing four days and it's so oh. beautiful out there. So beautiful. Also, you've got the whole McCartney Beatles again. We, we must touch on later the Mull of Kintyre. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Wrinkle yeah, their yeah, nose yeah, about yeah. that, but it's still 
fucking hell, when that song comes on, I'm five again. I mean, obviously, it's probably before you were born, but, like, yeah. you know, it's that kind of power, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, totally, yeah. Oh, so that's good. Incidentally, you should get Mark Riley, the great broadcaster, to take you whale watching, because that's I, I'm going to get him to take me one of these days, and maybe we could make a trip. Is he a whale watcher? He's big on it. Is he? He knows about whales, that guy. I can't think of anything I'd rather see in the whole world than a whale. Just to, like... Do you know what I mean? Just like the gargantuan, oh. like magnificence of it. <laughs> just coming out, just cresting out of the water. The nearest I ever got was we went to New Zealand years and years ago. Yeah. And uh, I, men- I seem to mention it every time I do one of these fucking podcasts, actually. It makes me sound well-travelled, you know. We went from the North Island to the just South Island. Just for the benefit of sake, Sean's tilted his glasses as he said this <laughs> to make him look more intellectual as well. Uh, more studious. <laughs> more studious. And uh, that, the producer said to me, <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Uh, and we went from the north to the south island and, and the, the, the ferry gets chased by schools of dolphins so you can stand mm-hmm. on whatever it is. I'm not a fucking sailor, the pro. Mm-hmm. And you can, you're can just sort of surrounded by dolphins and they're all kind of looking up to you, clicking away, going, hey, you enjoy it in the south? It's great. <laughs> I think that's what they're that's saying. That's what they're saying. That's such a... I actually once, the beginning of the end of one of my relationships was when I went um, dolphin watching with a girlfriend of mine and as we happen to be going out, I'm a Fulham football club supporter. Yeah. An ex-Fulham goalkeeper just happened to be on the boat opposite us going out. And my head was blown by this and I couldn't get Mike Taylor <laughs> out of my mind while we were watching the Dolphins. And she was so disturbed by that that the trip had been spoiled yeah. by the Fulham goalkeeper. But it just could never get it back on track really after that. Split up six months later. I love the idea of it would be an even more spiritual experience for you if the if an ex Fulham goalkeeper had been chasing the ball, <laughs> you know, and, and jumping out and you caught his eye. Sorry, um, I don't know where so, we're going. With so it. that's great. So we're going to have it though. Yes. We're going to have it in sort of that that part of Scotland. Yes, please. And we're going to, we need to call it something as well. Uh, but we don't have to dwell too heavily on this. But we need to call it something. Can we do it later? Can we do that later? All right, I'm, I'm going to come back. I to can that. tell you one thing because a stipulation this festival is going to be at the performances. Every single artist needs to do an encore. Ooh, encores. There was this movement a few years ago of like, what's the point of an encore? Everyone knows it's going to happen. Which I was like, we're always really like miffed by because it's like saying, well, why would you rehearse or set it up, anything up at all? I hated when people started getting rid of the encore as an idea because yeah. it's, because you get to watch this group, whatever it is, and then they go off and you all have this chat about how amazing it was. And then you're like, they're coming back on. And as a band, you have that sort of reset yeah. and it doesn't matter that no one, everyone knows, but that's what, you know, someone's drawn a line and set list and there's three more songs. So I just make, like to make really clear in this festival, right. everyone, Great. whether you're first on or last on, you're doing an encore <laughs> and everyone knows it. I love it. I love the multiple encore when they, when it's fully planned and it's kind of like you say, it's like part of the set. Mm-hmm. So it might be six songs and, and you know, they go off, they, they, they go off, they come on, they do two more. And then they go off again, and they come back, and they do three more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but, of course, the worst part of that is, especially living in London, especially if you go with your kids, like I do sometimes, is having to leave before the end of the show and then hearing your favourite song just as you're leaving oh, the auditorium. Oh, yeah. That's fucking shit. Because they saved it for the second encore. Yes. And where are we? We're at the Jubilee Line platform, like mm. dickheads. Check one. Testing... Is everybody ready yet? Yeah? We good? We're ready to go. 
Let the day begin. Well, listen. Let's crack into the first part. It's Oban. It's a beautiful morning. Mm-hmm. It's early. Mm-hmm. I don't know what we're going to have for breakfast. Kippers or something? No, I, I heard the Bobby Gillespie one, actually, and he, he does it in the Highlands, doesn't he? He has kippers. Yeah. But that's yeah. the... Like, if a festival is in the image of myself, I don't really eat breakfast. Right. And if I'm eating breakfast, I know that I've got nothing to do that day. <laughs> So if you've got like a normally quite packed day, is that because you don't have time or because you're, you've got a suppressed appetite? It will be the last thing that I think about and I normally will get to wherever I've got to be and realise I haven't eaten. And so I've, I feel like it's going to spin me out to have a breakfast at this festival. I'm gonna, okay. It's going to need to be in keeping with my general. Yeah, I think that's exactly right or else you could fuck yourself up by overloading on carbs and then you might be tired by 11 o'clock. Exactly. You might miss yeah. a band. Are we going to have any fluids? Coffee well, yeah, that's what I thought. I thought we could have, because that's the thing that's about festivals, but it's always like when you feel like you're in luxury at festivals, when you get a real cup, a mug, mm. you know what I mean? Mm. So what mm. I'm not going to serve breakfast to anyone, but I'm going to deliver actual ceramic mugs to everyone at the festival. So they can have coffee or tea in one of those. And you just get Beautiful. your little window of, I'm calm, I'm being looked after, we're yeah. good, let's go. We can start. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, I'd warn people, they'll be pinwheeling around. What were your formative musical experiences at home? Like, obviously you and your brother, Hugo, you know, you're musicians, you're in the Maccabees, we come, again, that's more to talk about later. But what were the... What were your first experiences with live music, for instance, when you were when you were kids? Did you have any of those? That's a really good question. That I had a um, I had an uncle who was it. Well, I have an uncle who was in a band on the Isle of Wight where my dad's from, and so we used to go and see his band, and they do sort of rock and roll blues covers. Yeah, and he's in a band called Hoggy in the Sharp Tones. Nice, and he wrote the title track to one of their CDs called Drive On, which started with the actual sound of keys going into an engine and a car driving on. So cool. And we thought it was so cool. And he put, he, and he, he made like in his own little home studio record called In Another Time, In Another Place by Martin White. And we learned every single word of this. So, that, so our first experience of live music would have been going to see in the backs of bars them just sort of do covers I that think. must have been very formative for you especially you you two young guitarists uh, to be was that like the first taste of what it could be like to thrill an audience I haven't considered how that shaped us really but I can tell you that he signed our CDs for us and he which we always talk about he wrote on it keep playing them 12 bar blues and yes. we didn't we didn't know what those 12 bar blues were there's something gorgeous about that, isn't there? Because he's your fucking uncle. He's like, yeah, <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to sign it. I know exactly where you live and stuff. I yeah. see you a couple of times a year. But there's still that rock and roll thing of, I'm going to sign this for you, lads. Yeah, I made a CD and I'm going to sign it for you. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. so brilliant. But we now have to think about who we're going to put on first at this festival that is as yet unnamed. Who's going to be on first? Since lockdown and since the Maccabees broke up, I got a bit freaked out that I started had started playing guitar as if it was like driving a Formula One car with like all the pedals and like mechanical process. And I started to really freak out that without a band, 
what am I, you know, someone asked me to play guitar. What am I going to, you know, I'm not going to play that one thing, but I need four other people to play to make it sound like a song. So I started really subconsciously and consciously listening to a lot of just guitarists on their own. So like flamenco guitar players, mm. John Fahey, is it? Lots of um, guitarists that just spoke just by playing the guitar. Because yeah. firstly, I thought, well, I need to go back to that thing of music just for music's sake, a bit like the bars on the Isle of Wight, because I haven't got a band to play in. There's yeah. no purpose for it, but I want to do it. It's just part of who I am. So I started learning loads of sort of, like flamenco things or just playing a lot more picking acoustic stuff, which I've been doing for the last few years. And I stumbled across a woman called Marisa Anderson. Don't know if you know Marisa Anderson. No. So she is a woman with long silver gray hair, big thick glasses from somewhere in America who just plays amazing solo guitar, but very sort of traditional, like country folk, bluegrass, but really understated and very powerful as well. And it's just happened that during lockdown, while I was going through that process, I don't know if you had this, but I couldn't suddenly music that had words or too much input. I couldn't actually yeah. take it in. Yeah. So I started feeling like, Oh, what I want to do is I, I can't even listen to lyrics. It's too much yeah. information. I've sort of delved further into what she was doing. And now it's sort of part of my everyday, really listening to Marisa Anderson. This is one of the things I love about this podcast is I get really great recommendations. And, and I didn't, I wasn't aware of her, but I'm going to seek her out. I will say I've never seen her. So this is an excuse to put her on. And I yeah. did actually, I had the gall to DM her on Instagram and say, would you give guitar lessons? And she said, she sent me a lovely message saying, didn't, I tried to do that and I didn't enjoy it. But if you got, if, send me any messages and I'll tell you, wow. you know, tips. Um, but one of the th- great things about about modern technology actually is that sometimes you can make those connections quite instantly, yes. and it's very sweet, isn't it? Very, very, very sweet. That's amazing. I mean, and you're right about that. I, I found that even before the pandemic, when things got a bit much in my life, and especially yeah. during the pandemic, that I do one of two things: I, I either seek out instrumental music like jazz for instance which is something i would never listen to as as much before but then also going back to the things that i used to love when i was a kid mm. you know so it's a bit like mum's home cooking isn't it so those are the two things that i access in times of great stress no, which is I, most of the time <laughs> <laughs> no i think yeah i totally um hear you on that she she's amazing because a lot of the things i've watched on youtube she'll sometimes like tell a little fable or something and or tell you a story about this is about how when things hit the shit you've got to look at yourself rather than blaming other people and then she'll play this four minute just acoustic guitar thing and you're like god yeah that sounds exactly like that without having one word in it yeah you know it's just so the power of music when it's right exactly I was mentioning off off mic and and just touching in on what I was saying about the things you love from childhood I heard you on the fabulous egg pod podcast about the Beatles and you were discussing the, amongst other things, the White Album, um, because you had a couple of tapes in your childhood car. Yeah. And the, the White Album was one of them. Yes. Let's go into a bit of that, because I love you. You talk about the Isha sessions and you're talking about some of the Beatles songs that people might not pick up on as being their favourites. Like people might say she loves you. They might not say the continuing story of Bungalow Bill. But that's one of, these are your touchstones. Yeah, yeah. Is it because of that? Because that was the direct access to childhood or something? Well, yeah, firstly, I think the interesting thing looking back on it was that 
on those car journeys, there would just be random tapes in, and one of them was Beatles Live at the BBC. And, uh, you know, that's just like them playing standards and them sort of messing around. And for a kid, that was for, for anyone, but especially when you're young, it was really in sort of intoxicating because that felt like a gang, that their like shit couldn't be broken just by being silly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They just had this like impenetrable force. So like for, for a young child, that was really like, oh, wow, I want to be in that gang. Yeah. And I, when that tape used to end, uh, I used to often ask for more Beatles. And the other more Beatles option was the White Album, which is only like six or eight years later, but hearing the same, but sort of putting in your head, but the same people eight years later (laughs) are suddenly delivering this really like dark, twisted universe with lots of like sort of grim fairy tale sort of nursery rhymes. And then like Helter Skelter, big like rocking, yeah. stuff and acoustic picking and weird noises and number nine, that loop yeah. revolution number nine that goes on 15 minutes. It did provoke something in my head is like, what happens to groups of what happened in that period of time to those people yeah. to change them? So like viscerally, you know what I mean? It's so funny how life comes back around because then you end, I end up finding myself in a yeah not dissimilar situation. You're like eight years ago, we were, we're the same people, but we're completely changed you know it is almost like people like McCartney and Lennon well all of those guys and a lot of people who've been in extreme situations like that it's a bit like they've time traveled it's like 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 like, like physicists say if if you flew at close to the speed of light to the Andromeda galaxy and came back you know uh, everybody else would have aged 200 years and you built you'd have aged like three minutes but it's kind of like the other way around with rock stars like that it's like they've seen shit Totally. And done shit that none of us will ever, ever get to experience in eight lifetimes. And they've done it in like six fucking years. Yeah. And the White Album, man, even politically, like gently weeps or whatever, it couldn't be more relevant. Now, yeah. even um, get back when there's, when yeah. you're hearing the lyrics and it's like about the immigration thing, you know, like sending yeah. up the government, like how it couldn't be more relevant now, could it? You must have watched the Peter Jackson Let It Be session. Yes. Which is, we're all obsessing about. And I apologize, especially to devotees of the podcast like Robert Elms, uh, the delightful, <laughs> wonderful Robert Elms. I was on his show the other week. Uh, we used to have a laugh about the fact that he, f- he doesn't like the Beatles. He prefers kicking on the coconuts, you know. But like for the people that don't like the Beatles, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. Uh, I got kicked I got kicked off of Robert Elms' show once. Did, have you, did you know that? You got what? I got kicked off of Robert Elms' show. What, what we, happened? We were got, me and Lan went on to do Toothpaste Kisses on our first, the Maccabees' first album. Yeah. And we messed it, like, Lamb messed it up. And I just, I thought, oh, I'm going to make light. I had it in my head after you messed up, like, I'm going to make light of that in a second when we finish the song. And I said at the end, I was going to write till Lamb fucked it up. <laughs> and he went, he immediately went, whatever, fade it down. And he told me to get out. Oh, no. He said, you know, I could lose my job for that. And in silence, I packed my guitar up. And we were ushered out of the building. You must have been, were you absolutely devastated by that? I was you, devastated because in you my, you're not the kind of person, you're not, it's not Bill Grundy. You're not John Lydon, are you? You're trying no, to just, just do a nice I was just making song. a joke and we were getting on so well. But obviously swearing on his show was like such a big deal, but he couldn't tolerate it. It was like a zero tolerance, you're out. It's the last time I had eye contact with Robert Elms, let alone any it, whales. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, Robert Elms emerged from the sea 
and he and he said, you know what? It's, it's all right. It's all right. You're forgiven. And then he was he was off on his maybe, boogie board again. Maybe but, that's what I was looking for. Yeah, it wasn't a whale at all. It re- reminds me actually of of 2006. Mm. I introduced the Flaming Lips on stage at Hyde Park dressed as Superman. Right? Yeah. It's a long story. Yeah. And um, it's not that long. <laughs> and you know, you know, it's like at the, at the Flaming Lips gigs. There's people dressed as aliens. There are people dressed sure. as Superman. You know, all this. And we're yeah. all dancing about. We're all we're all thrilled to be there. And I yeah. I picked up his big hands. And started doing this at the front of the stage. And Captain America came over to me, this guy dressed as Captain America, and was like, what the fuck do you think you're doing, you asshole? You ruined the whole show. Those are Wayne's hands. He puts them on for Yoshimi at the end of the set for crying out loud. Get the fuck out of here. And I, I crestfallen like you at Robert Elmsy's studio. I had to sort of do that walk of shame dressed as Superman out of the fucking, out of the out of Hyde Park. <laughs> I mean, so it was, it was, I was like... What, uh, you were literally leaving, what, for the tube station dressed as Superman? Well, <laughs> I, I, and then I, I sort of got a hold of myself and I was like, fuck you, Captain America. I don't think Wayne's that bothered. It's so anyway, so we both had similar experience. Can I just quickly, I know that we need to be getting on the festival, but I just need to quickly tell one more story, but that's triggered. When I was in um, GCSE art class, I was ter- terrible at art. And I was, I was like sort of causing a bit of, you know, they have like eight hour, 16 hour art exams at GCSE, you know, where everyone draws a picture and it goes on for two days or something. And that's the exam. <laughs> I'd mess mine up like six hours previous. And I was like being a bit silly and like running around, like putting a music on. And there was this really shy girl in my class called Anique. And she'd done this beautiful watercolor. And in the last minute of the exam, I ran across the classroom to change the CD. And I fudded the table and as Sean, I can still see it. The cup full of water just went whoop, 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 and it went all over what kind of ruined her art exam. And the teacher screamed at me like your guy at Flaming Lips and Robert Elms combined in front of the whole class. Said, you stupid little child. Da, 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 da. Anyway, that she had to go in at the weekend and do the whole thing again. And I saw her like seven years later in HMV I saw through in the corner. I was like, I have to go over to her. And I went over and said, just tap to Anique. I'm Felix White. I just want to say something. Without a beat, she didn't, oh, don't worry about it. It's absolutely fine. She didn't even search for it. It was still like right in the front of her head, but I'd ruined her exam. Listen, <sighs> anyway, it doesn't sorry. give me any pleasure to say this, Felix, but this is the end of the podcast <laughs> because I don't want to talk to somebody who has said the F word on Robert Elms and has fucked up Anique's GCSE art. So get up. No, okay. So Sorry, it's been very professional. We've resolved ourselves now. Yeah, come on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line.
We continue to pinball around. We'll come back to the Beatles, but we've had a great opener to the day with Marisa Anderson. Yes. And her solo guitar. Who should we put on next? Great question. So the next thing that I want to put on is um, I Am Clute. Oh! Are you a fan of I Am Clute? Oh, they're so beautiful, man. I mean, and there's a sort of affinity between Clute and Elbow, and they're some of my favourite people yeah. in the music business. So tell us about you and Clute. Well, it's interesting that you asked the question about what was our awakening into the adult world and live music, because after seeing my uncle's bands and stuff, one of, for some reason, we found a deep affinity with I Am Clute once they put their first record out. And it was before we'd really seen live music, but I think for a number of reasons. Firstly, I think they were quite accessible because they were playing quite small places. So you could get to see their gigs quite a lot or you could get tickets last minute. And for people that don't know I'm Clute, it's really atmospheric, but melodic, acoustic, high dynamic, free, free band music, just like phenomenal group. But we used to go and see I'm Clute and they'd be, we'd be right at the front, literally at the front. And Pete, the bass player who, who works with Elba yeah. now, Guy Garvey, Pete Jobson. Pete Jobson, legend. He'd be sat on the left, just quite sort of demonic finger, figure, like a sort of Tim Burton character. And he would, in the days when you could smoke in things, he would never not have a cigarette in his mouth. He used to just, without even noticing that the last one had gone, he would just be covered in smoke, rotating them. And Johnny, the singer, he'd just have a, he wouldn't have a strap on his guitar and he'd just have a beer crate that he would put his foot on wow. and he'd play in front of you. And they used to turn these little, like really sort of standard bar places into, yeah, there was just a really a distinct atmosphere they created, yeah. which sort of changed all these spaces. And one of the things that was really, it was like a window into the adult world, definitely for us. But they used to always have, it always, always used to feel like there was this background chatter going on like you were in a pub, like people were always sort of talking through it, even though the music was very quiet, very fragile, songs about heartbreak or not fitting in. And when I sort of reflected on that, I think like it was, couldn't have been more perfect that yeah. these songs about not quite fitting in or being ignored or over drinking were always met with this sort of atmospheric yeah. background noise as well. So they were just a sort of really strangely perfect group to fall in love with. At that particular period of time. And like he used to, John used to always say, this song's about love and disaster. Or this song's about sadness and disaster. And it became a thing. And so everyone that knew, he'd set it up and then the whole crowd would go, and disaster. <laughs> and every single song was about disaster. And I mean, I'm not to get too like heavy, but a lot of it's in the book about my mum dying and processing yeah. loss. And I think it was interesting that me and my brothers got into I'm Clute at that time at teenagers when she was just about to die or just had died. We maybe couldn't talk about it so much or whatever, but Clutes were very, um, there was something tragic about it, not just yeah. the content of the song, but that it, but they weren't bigger. And that this adult world was laced with everything ends in disaster. It was strangely um, comforting. I'm glad that you brought it up like that because yeah there's something I, I don't know you're painting almost a picture of like a Tom Waitsian barfly situation it is that there, sort you know? of thing yeah it is that kind of thing they're just struggling existentially through these gigs and putting their heart out there 
And people are talking about we're going to have another pint of mild at the back. You know, there's a tragedy to that. There was a tragedy about it because they genuinely were so good. And even in reflection, they still are like, I think one of the great groups. Yeah. So yeah, there was something sort of just so poignant about it that it, that, that life didn't always work out exactly as it should. And yeah. the songs were about that. I mean, and you talk about it, obviously, the, the, the book is a love letter to, to, to your mum, to Lana, to, to a great extent. And very, sorry to probably bring this up, and it, it's a, probably a sad thing, but like the, the last words of it just struck me. Um, and to mum, Lana White, who I hope would have liked this, that Aww. sort of got under my ribs a bit. But, you know, um, to lose your mum at 17, you know, you seem to be looking for life lessons that, maybe your, your mum would be giving you if she was around and you get it in these strange places and you talk very eloquently about how, and it's I've never ever heard it before, like how you're so into, you're so in love with cricket and watching England play and stuff, but you kind of almost prefer it when they lose yeah, yeah, yeah. because it gives you, what does it give you? Well, that's, that's really, yeah. I mean, that's been a fascinating thing after therapy and, you know, two decades of unpacking it. But I would go to... I'd be going to Fulham Football Club and I'd be going to the England cricket team and I'd be going to I'm Clute and I'd be, I'd be hoping secretly that my team would lose. And for a, you know, that was the most sacrilege thing you can do like in those sort of environments, you know, like you want your team to win, you're heartbroken, you don't. And it, it took a lot of unpacking to, well, yeah, it took a lot of unpacking to realise I'm searching that feeling out because when it happens, it's like a big communal funeral and you're suddenly allowed, there's a lot of physical contact mm. and you're allowed to express pain for a second yes. and those sort of spaces facilitated it for a second. And yeah. it's sort of a lot of what the book's about is the uncomfortable things about grief. And I think one of the things I definitely had when, when my mum died was it's so weird that you almost enjoy it when, when someone close to you dies, because you get so much attention. Yeah. You're on a sort of like alien buzz. You're on, yeah. you're on enough of a adrenaline trip. It's so trippy, but it felt like actually maybe I was trying to find that yeah. feeling again and again and again, because there was something about that that was, um, served me a purpose or something. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, it's a healing in a way, isn't it? Yeah. In, in a funny way. And and it's funny how you talk about the end of the band as well in a similar way. Like it, you're synthesizing by accident a similar thing. It's a bit like when I, when my show finished. I'm not comparing that to the grief. No, but it's exactly the same thing. But it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? Where for a little pocket of time, you're the center of attention, and yes. everybody f- understands how you're feeling and are really interfacing with it and and empathizing with you. And there's a sort of a lovely there's a loveliness amongst the sadness. Yeah. Do you mind me asking if you felt that after, because I, I was thinking of you when your show ended and how you must be, loads of past I, losses must be loaded into that moment. I, I think that having experienced uh, in a small way the end of your band, yeah, because yeah, yeah, uh, we were there and stuff. You DJ that it. Pally and we did a little, I did a little DJ set. Yeah, Because yeah. uh, what I like to do is to bring people's expectations down before the band come on, you know. They're like, get fucking hell fire. When's this guy off? Oh, thank God the band are on. But we were there and it was massively emotional. And and, and obviously we've been on that journey with you for a, quite a long time anyway. And you, I remember you coming in on the show 
just when the, um, the last album came yeah, out and yeah. everything, and we saw you at the last Glastonbury, and that was emotional. Yeah. So when I left my thing after 14 years, a sort of comparable amount of time, I suppose, and a, a, amount of emotion that you put into something, I thought of you lot pretty much straight away because I thought, because we always would talk about it. Yeah. We'd play the Maccabees afterwards, and it'd be like, and this, it's hard, isn't it? Because nobody's died. Everybody's yeah. well. Yeah, everybody's. Yeah. It's a bit like when the fucking Beatles split up. Yeah. It's like everybody's well. Everybody's they've split up for a reason because it's not really working anymore. Yeah. So it's a happy thing in a way. Yeah. But it, but it's obviously fucking sad as well. Do you know what's similar about it? I reckon definitely people of your show would have felt, I think felt with the Maccabees is that, but with the Maccabees, the timing of it, it was like, for a lot of people, it was symbolic of, oh, that part of my life's over now. That's right. Because you'd shared yeah. it with... You know, you might have been into your band with people that weren't here or as a, it, it stood for a time of youth or whatever like that. So everyone at those end of those gigs was experiencing their own sort of processing of, oh, this means that you get those things that sort of cement, oh, the past is gone. Yeah. I don't live in the past anymore. And that was definitely what happened with your show as well, isn't it? People really channel their lives through yours. I mean, I did because I've listened to it every day. So you suddenly think, oh, I'm not going to be listening to Sean. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's symbolic it's for something. It's the passing of life. time. And again, it's mortality, isn't it? But I think that that's, if you can mean that to some people, that's incredibly cool, isn't it? Yeah. You know, if you've done something that means that, you know, something to enough people that they're like, we'll come up and say that to you. That's, that's a, yeah. I mean, that's as good as you can do really, isn't it? It really is. And and it's funny that I saw, every, I see everything through the prism of the Beatles now at the moment because of, <laughs> yeah, I really God. do. It's just pathetic. Yeah, me too. But like, I keep saying to myself, you know, it's a bit. You're a bit like Paul McCartney <laughs> when when he goes off to yeah. to Scotland actually to Oban. You know, he yeah. goes to Mull of Kintyre and, and after the Beatles have split up, you know, and it's like uh, he's got to re regroup, you know, and and it's like fucking hell. That's what I'm. That's what I've got. It's like my Beatles is That's behind me doing, now yeah. and I've got to do whatever happens next. Yeah, totally. I just hope that it's not the frog chorus. You know, <laughs> is it, it's all things must pass maybe. Yeah. That, but be. you know, actually I do like the frog chorus. Um, yeah. So hang on, there's so much to go at here, but that's a beautiful, God, I, I'm so glad that you've chosen Clute. Can I quickly, one more stipulation for I'm Clute. I'm yeah. going to insist that everybody in this festival listens to them and there is no background chatter but i'm going to feed in through the pa background chatter <laughs> that's so funny because atmospherically that's <laughs> what it requires but if i hear one person actually talking through this they're getting kicked out like you in a superman costume all right <laughs> i love it we're piping through that's so meta isn't it we're piping through chat that's but so we're not allowing it that's yeah, when you live so through a great. lockdown when you've got yeah anyway too much time on our hands. Yeah. Um, okay, so from Clute, where do we go? We're in a lull period here. It's probably early to mid-afternoon. We go, you've not eaten. We haven't eaten. So first of all, let's just have a bit of lunch, what we're going to have. Exactly. So we're going to have, uh, <laughs> this is the moment of the day where I think, oh, I'm I feel weird, I feel anxious. Why is that? It's because I haven't eaten. Talking about my mum, my mum was from Palestine. She's Palestinian. And uh, I've been getting into cooking like you, as you get older, you sort of chase back things your parents are into. So I've been making very simple Palestinian wow. dishes. 
What well, kind of things? Well, well, basically, I mean, to be honest with you, it's all like, from the book I've got, it all seems like he just basically shoved loads of olive oil and lemon on everything. <laughs> and that's what makes it Palestinian. So I don't know if the book's maybe necessarily the most authentic thing in the world. But the thing that I've, the thing that I've, I've been doing, right, it's like sliced potatoes. Mm. And then you make a sort of loads of olive oil, loads of lemon, garlic, chili, parsley, all in there. You whack that all in there. It's in the oven. Then you put halibut fish, I think, on top, mm. and then layer it again. And when it comes out, it's, yeah, it's, and when it comes out, it's just this beautiful garlicky sliced oh. potatoes fish. That's oh. good, isn't it? Okay, we'll we'll get a pot of that on the go. Yes, please. And, and I must just quickly say, I did warn the listeners it would eventually become like a, I always say, a hostage situation. Really, but <laughs> yeah, but, but you, you know, your, your your grandparents seem to me like a, quite a romantic story as well, really, because like you say, your grand your maternal grandma is from Palestine. Yeah, she evacuated Palestine as a young girl from you know the Israeli thing, and she met my grandfather who was like he was fixing telecom lines. And they fell in love and she eventually moved to England where my mum was born. But when the, the house I knew them in, there used to be this big key, you know, it was the size of a guitar or the size of a cricket bat, if you will. And I was used to be wondering what that thing was. And it turned out like as I got older, I was told that that was the key for the house that she was kicked out of. But they, and they symbolically used to keep these massive keys to say like, we're, you know, they'd be returning there one day. It's just, it speaks so much to what the, the hostile environment that a lot of people find themselves in in this country now because of the Home Office and be, the, all the massive things that came through Brexit and, and not to be too politicised about it, but is that more relevant in a way to you because that's in your family line, that kind of displacement? To be honest, I don't think it is more relevant. I think that's just gen, general that's just and humanity, genuine humanity, isn't it? isn't it? And I think it doesn't. you don't need to have known someone yeah. to be from there. I mean, that's the problem actually. Yeah. Is a lot of people need to have know someone or gone yeah. through it themselves to actually acknowledge it. We when could you should, the, it should just be a human requisite to be yeah. a human is to actually yeah, yeah. be able to tell that that's a bad thing that needs to stop. I mean, I can't. I mean, I know this is what 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 the point of it all is, man. But last few months, I just checked out of it because it's just too disturbing and too horrible, and you feel so powerless, don't you? But I just this is why we sit at home, you know, listening to instrumental music, staring at walls. That's, you right. you know, this is what they want, isn't it, Sean? Well, I keep saying this to people. I, I've been sending a lot of messages to listeners and stuff of recent times. Just basically the subtext, not the subtext, the explicit text is we can't give up. We That is exactly like you've just said. Those fuckers want us to give up. And that's the one yeah. thing that we ain't going to do. And we'll just yeah. keep keep at it. Absolutely. That's what I think. But yeah, she, but she was like, she'd be, um, she'd be constantly like ar- talking in Arabic or muttering stuff in Palestinian in the background of like when I was growing up. So that's where Yalla come from, a record label, because she used to say, okay. Yalla, come on, get inside, hurry up. Oh. Um, so that's where, when I started this record label with Mo a few years ago, that's why Yalla seemed appropriate. Carrying these things on.
Well, let's let's think about the next the next band. Okay, who this do, is who do yeah. we go to next? This is a curveball, actually. I'm going to put on the Peter Thomas Sound Orchestra, Sean. The Peter Thomas, yeah, and they're going to do they're going to be doing the soundtrack, the Big Boss from the first Bruce Lee film. <gasps> I used to love that film when I was a kid. I've never seen it. I'll tell you why I'm choosing it quickly. I've been making a record this year, which has been car journeys to and from the studio, yeah. an hour to an hour from. And Jamie, one of the guys I'm doing it with, he has a rule, similar to what we talked about earlier, that when he's driving, he doesn't want to listen to lyrics. So we've been listening to instrumental music. And one of the things he was really into was this really bombastic soundtrack for the big boss, which is like big brass band, timpani, amazing guitars, strange synths and it's just really eccentric high energy music and I just thought for this festival it's always nice to see something you haven't seen before and be like oh you know like that's timpani by the way yeah yeah or whatever you know so I want to flood (laughs) I want to flood the stage with instruments people wouldn't necessarily have seen before at a rock concert that's such a good idea and you've weirdly you've uncovered a Proustian memory of there was a little pocket of time in the it must have been when it, 1979 or nineteen eighty, so it must have been eight years old or so. And for some reason, my parents sort of allowed me to watch Bruce Lee films because they were quite adult, actually. Were they? And they, did, they didn't usually let me watch these kind of things, but I, maybe I was pretending that I was going to take up karate or some shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I never yeah. had the, the purpose to do it. But uh, Enter the Dragon, I always remember it, the, kid, the the guy getting kicked onto a like a massive sword hanging out of a hole of mirrors or something. But big the big boss, I remember that. Like Bruce Lee kicks the shit out of like 120 guys or something. Something to do with throwing a bird in a birdcage up like that and then it just lands on a hook 100 foot away. I was very impressed by that. Yeah. And also I seem to remember a bare breast. <laughs> and and okay, at the age yeah. of about eight or nine, yeah, 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 you never forget it. <laughs> you, you, you never forget it. It is like I can't, you know, what the what have I just no, seen? Yeah. Anyway, so there you go. Well, thank so you for giving me the- and the festival some visual aids for what we're about to see because I've never seen this film and I don't. And I'm, but I'm choosing it out of completely out of context just because the music's so good and all the things you just described there. The music is the equivalent of that. Yeah, because you you enter that you're in the world of soundtrack as well. You you write soundtrack music. So yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm how do-, do you do it? By the way, is it keyboards mostly? Is it guitar? How do you do it? Well, I'm I'm doing one at the moment. The, the room I'm in now. This is how I started all the demos. I've got lots of different weird synths, some things that make strange there, noises. So fun, man! You have the film here, setting up bits bits of demos, and I'm in the process at the moment of doing it in a studio with like cellos and. All oh, kinds wow. of things, yeah. But I've really, I've really got into it actually because um, a bit like that big boss thing I'm talking about, it's been liberating making music without having to think, what's the song going to be? That's the one downside, of, as you would have seen from the Beatles thing, is you need everybody else to validate your idea yeah. in order for it to fly. And sometimes if you choose the wrong moment to put your idea across when George is having a sulk or whatever... The idea might not work. Yes. <laughs> so you might what, have an unbelievable idea, but that if if they turn against that idea for whatever reason, it kind of is dead in the water. Mate, it's so amazing that because as you like notice on the documentary, sometimes there isn't really an idea, but everyone's in a good enough mood yeah. that it just goes somewhere. 
and sometimes Paul might have a whole song, but because no one wants to do it, it gets stopped. Yeah. So there's something even in that, the art of in band dynamics, like putting your idea across right at the precise moment in time. <laughs> but anyway, so with, with, um, with this, that's been a nice liberating thing is I don't have to think, oh, you know, how's it going to work? You know, who's going to think what about it? I'm just doing it to the score, like yeah. suggesting feeling. It doesn't have to be too loaded of melody and all that kind of thing. Just to go back to that band thing, is it fair to say that all, all bands have a shelf life really? With the, with, there are exceptions, weirdly, aren't there? People like massive bands like Coldplay and U2, for some mm. reason they've managed to navigate it. So perhaps it's the hundreds of millions of pounds that help. <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't yeah. possibly say. Yeah. But for nearly all other bands, it feels like it's like physics. It's like a planet. It comes together mm. because of the gravity and then it spins too fast and it splits apart. Yes. Do you think that? Exactly as you described. With all, probably with all collaborative things like that, the productive tension that makes it so great is the thing that's going to break it up. Yeah. Isn't it? And you can't, you can really feel that in the Beatles room, that sort of, I can't tell you how close that is to the experience of being in the Maccabees in terms of their like personal, the looks, <laughs> the, the heaviness sometimes in the room the little moments when they're having their own in-jokes that only they find funny because only they will understand it. And then that kind of thing, though, of, but you, as everyone's leaving their childhood or leaving the person they used to be, everyone getting further and further, like it becoming irreconcilable. Yeah. The differences. I will I'll quickly talk to you about purpose because I hear this word come up a lot in your book and in, in you talking, and I love the way you talk about it. And touching on bands and the end of, of a big thing in your life, that was something that you thought about a lot. It's elusive, isn't it? it? What is it? And is it necessary? And what can we find purpose in simpler things? Or what, 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 what conclusions have you come to about that? I, I don't, do, you want, do you want a deep answer? Do you want a relatively deep answer? Of course answer? I fucking do, yeah. Okay, so I think, so I think <laughs> when, um, for, for, I don't know if other young people have lost parents or ever felt this, but when my mum was dying, I think I felt like, Without actually consciously thinking it, I think the, the things that a parent gives you, touch, love, unconditionality, all that kind of stuff, I was beginning to work out, oh, I'm not going to get it actually from her. And so as that happened, I think I started going more and more into the world and trying to replicate it mm. in bigger groups. So big groups of friends or put being in a band that does gigs and all that kind of thing, where you're getting something close to the feeling and it feels grateful and it felt great for a while. But as I got older, the realization was that I've just replaced, I'm chasing down the feeling with, but without any sort of risk, no intimate relationships. There's lots of like loads of controlled interactions yeah. with people where you feel like you're loved and all that kind of stuff, but you're not getting the thing. So eventually the reckoning was, like yeah, you know, story told millions of times before, isn't it? Like you have loads of performers that are, they're on a stage because there's something not right in in their life, and I think that was something to come to terms with, really. But there's a, there's a bargaining there where you're like at some stage you realise, oh yeah, they're not coming back, yeah, and I have to work that out because you, you do. There's some strange thing your brain does goes, well, maybe if I get there, yeah, you know, it's like you're reminding me again. We have to go back to John and Paul. 
and yeah. uh, two two men who lost the the mothers sixteen and seventeen. This is the that, this is the thing that I don't think gets talked enough about the Beatles, but I think is the really strong thing in that relationship is they both lost their mothers, mm. and they both suddenly attached to each other. They're trying to find. They provide a lot of the maternalistic stuff in each other, and you can see yeah. it and get back. They sort of look after each other. Yeah. So it must have been so painful for both of them to feel a relationship ending. And I always wonder why that isn't explored as much mm. amongst all the other things in the Beatles, especially with John. He has this type of personality where you sense because he's been hurt, he's going to push and push and push the yeah. people close to him to prove that they'll leave him too. Yeah. Oh God. I never thought about that actually. Do you know what I mean? So, I mean, I love Yoko, but that's a provocative gesture having her there and he's testing them all yeah. to see oh, if they'll God. leave him. That's what I think. Well, that's, yeah, I hadn't quite seen it exactly like that before. And it, apologies again for putting everything through the Beatles prison, but... Uh, I love it. But it, actually, in the words of Steve Coogan's character, Paul Carf, I'm sorry, but I make no apologies for that. <laughs> uh, she's one of my favourite lines. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, don't go we, deep again now. I don't know if I went too deep on the question. No, 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 you can't. That's, that's, you the, can't. Ans- that's the answer to purpose, I think, from my perspective. I think that all roads do lead back to that. And it's about finding connection again, you know? We've come to this uh, quite an emotional part of the festival, the sunset moment. Oh, yes. The sun goes down uh, behind the mountains and that. I'm not sure the geography of this part of Scotland. And um, the pine trees. And uh, it's a beautiful moment. It's a warm mm. evening. Uh, we've had Clute. We've had the Peter Thomas Sound Orchestra giving us yes. some really wild stuff. Yeah. Uh, Marissa Anderson. Who do we have at this point? I've, I've, I think I've been a bit, in, in some ways, a bit contrary of my choices up till now. So I feel like I would be lying if I said every time I see a gig, I don't think to myself a minute before that band walks on, I wish this was going to be the Strokes walking on now. They were so formative for you, weren't they? I just, there's something about seeing the strokes even now that gets my adrenaline so, it makes me so high in a natural sense, seeing the strokes. I can't really explain how euphoric it is watching their silhouetted shapes on stage. And I think it is with a lot of people who got into guitar music at my age, there's something so perfect about the music they made. And so um, it's weirdly symphonic, actually. Yeah. For, for a rock and roll band like they get compared to Velvet Underground and stuff a lot but it isn't really it's like beautifully meticulously worked out interweaving uh, music that's for me beyond like rock and roll music do you know what I mean it's like um, there's something really strangely of another planet to it for me there's something studious about that approach to music uh, which I think is missed sometimes. You just think about the the skinny jeans and the fact that they all look fucking gorgeous and so cool. Which they do. And it's like beautiful. And then you've got Julian's distorted vocal mm. as well. How old were you? You you must have been at that very vulnerable age for really getting yeah, into something. It's definitely it, it's definitely about the timing of it because I was 17, 18 at the time. Um, we were just, we were getting into, I think the Maccabees, had the Maccabees started by the time the Strokes, I think the Maccabees were starting roughly the same time as as the Strokes were, were coming to England. So it was very, 
they were very symbolic of what a guitar band should be about what is possible, about how it makes you feel all of those kind of things about the excitement a gig can create. Did um, you ever meet, have you met them at all? Yeah, we, we actually supported the strokes when we were doing like little bars in Brighton. They asked us to support them at Brighton center. <laughs> and what? I can still remember, I can still remember it like right in the height of being me and Hugo, especially being completely obsessed with them. I can remember walking into Brighton center and they were sound checking and it's completely empty apart from them, those figures on the stage and just like herding ourselves to the back of that hall and just watching them do it. They were much bigger than I, they seem, when yeah. I remember them now, they're like twice as tall as human beings are. Very tall <laughs> and like, like really precise cheekbones, obviously. They were in the catering. I remember being like, well, I remember feeling sick, but I was in the presence of the strokes. But I went up to Nick and Fab can see it now as I'm saying, just like, they were just like at catering and um, asked them if they'd come and watch us. And we were first on a Swedish band called Shout Out Louds on second. Remember Shout Out yeah, Louds? Yeah, really good them, band. Yeah. Anyway, so we was, we, I remember playing, you know, to like court a full Brighton Centre and looking across to my left and they were all there, just stood there. That was so beautiful. Yeah, because, you know, I, I was just a kid from, you know, it says, oh, we love you and da 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 and they'd all made the gesture of coming to the side of the stage to watch this band who who had the gall to ask if they would. That's so cool. So, yeah. I touched Jack White's red and white plasticky guitar once when he was in XFM. Just touched it with my finger like that. And it was, yeah. That, that was, I, felt, I thought, maybe this will imbue me with, <laughs> with some rock and roll spirit, but, yeah. but it didn't. Um, we, we've got to let you go at some point. So I think it's only fair and right to... Before this becomes a hostage situation. Bef- it really, and before people start sending you messages going, you okay, hon, we've not seen you for a while. <laughs> uh, you know, on Twitter. Has anybody seen Felix White? One, two. After the strokes, who, who headlines this? I feel, do you know what? I feel bad now because we talked enough about the Beatles, but this would be the perfect punchline to say the Beatles on the roof. And I should have said that, but I'm going to stick with what I decided last night. Who's it going to be? I'm going to have the band doing the last waltz. Oh, you bastard. Has anyone said that yet? No. Right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take Martin Scorsese's The Last Waltz with the band. I'm going to freeze it. I'm going to move it to, where are we doing this again? Oban. Yeah. And I'm going to make a few alterations to the lineup. So for people that don't know, this is the last ever band concert after 16 years together, which Martin Scorsese films. And they, they do this amazing concert at uh, Winter Wonderland or whatever you call it. In, in oh, that's um, it. Winterland Ballroom, San Francisco. Winterland Ballroom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's an astonishing film and it's got all guests that come on and do things. Muddy Waters, Van Morrison, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young. It's the film I go to if I want to reconnect with that feeling of how much I love music, really, how exciting music makes me. I watched The Last Waltz. It is just staggering, isn't it? As a mm-hmm. piece of music, as a band, they were the band that were pretty virtually peerless, weren't they? It was the band that George Harrison is, it always comes back to the fucking Beatles, Sean. Pissed off and hung out with the band, didn't he, in, in America for a while and then came back. And well, actually, let they all got into it. Let's they? do that a bit because I think that the get back, um, the get back footage, I think a little bit of let it be is a response to the band, but doesn't get documented a lot. Where the band are 
what they do is being in a room playing together. And like yes. a lot of things where the Beatles identified something that was and went, actually, we can do that better than that. <laughs> Let's prove that we can do that better. I think Let It Be is, yeah. is a little bit of that. Um, Sean, there's a few things I want to say about this, though, because I've made a few alterations to the gig. <laughs> Go on, um, I've got my pen there, there are some guest appearances, yep. which when I used to have it on VHS, I used to fast forward through. <laughs> and I'm going to get rid of the following guest appearances. Right. Neil Diamond, yeah. no longer. Go on. Paul, Paul Butterfield. Yeah. Eric Clapton. <laughs> well, a lot of people will be like, hmm. And I Ron- agree for that matter. And Ronnie the Hawk Hawkins, even though that's great. You're taking all of those guys out. And I'm replacing them with the following. Right. Karen O. Oh. Is going to come on and do Turn Into. Fuck. Because I don't think you can have a festival without the person that... Imp- I've never seen someone on a festival stage be both incredibly personal and address the whole place and be stupid and fun and deeply moving and intimidating and friendly, all the things at once. Karen O has to be involved. Brilliant. So Um, happy you've done that. So Karen O's in. Karen Dalton is in. Oh. She's going to do something on your mind. Beautiful. Which might be controversial because I know she had a relationship with Levon Helm, the drummer in the band. So hopefully they'll, they'll have patched it up enough to do this. <laughs> John Martin's going to come on and do Sweet Little Mystery with him. Oh. And Loudon Wainwright III mm. is going to come on and do his song, Your Mother and I. What a great idea. I mean, nobody's done that yet. Like re- taking a classic. I mean, that's a classic moment in pop culture history, the, uh, the, the last waltz, because it's just. Concerts like that became almost de rigueur after time. You know, you have a band and then they have guests on and stuff. But nobody had yeah, ever not done really it before done. or since as well as that. Yeah. But all the characters were at that time, that sort of Dr. John and Van Morrison in his sequin suit doing Caravan. Doing his high you, kicks. Yeah, which is, which, I mean, if, if no one's seen that, that might be some of the great four minutes in rock and roll history, that yeah. Van Morrison's clearly keen to steal the show from yeah. Dylan later in the piece and all that kind of thing. So it's really fantastic. And well, because people haven't eaten much, Sean. Yeah. And this yeah. is a cinematic experience. Yeah. So I'm going to be serving popcorn. Oh, that's good. What a lovely finish. So you can what have sweet and sour popcorn, your little two litre Cokes, and you can watch it as if it's a film that's oh, happening in front of you. And what I like what you've done there, you've got, look at what I, this is what I've got to work with now. This is my contract that I, <laughs> the listeners sorry. can't see that, but that that's what I've written down. I, mean, I love see, that. See, see, it's roughly in the shape of North America, actually. <laughs> this piece of paper with all the details on. Um, I think you've just done such a great fucking job there of curating this one day festival. Thank you, mate. Food, food's been deployed at the right times. Yeah, um, we could do another couple of hours without without question. We will eventually on some some format or other. But what we had there is stuff to check out as well for most of us. Marissa Anderson starts. Yes, I yes. am Clute. Yes, right. Then we got the Peter Thomas Sound Orchestra yeah. giving that cinematic madness. Then we get the Strokes, the band with Karen or Karen Dalton, John Martin, Loden Wainwright uh, to replace Neil Diamond, Paul Butterfield, Eric Clapton, and. Uh, Somebody whose name I can't read. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ronnie the Hawk Hawkins. He's amazing, but I needed to make space. You need to make space. Right. We can't wait 
to hear what comes out next as far as the music is concerned. The book, it's always summer somewhere. Every time you open a page, you get taken on a, on, a, on an odyssey. Don't be uh, mistaken for thinking it's a cricket book. It begins, that's the, the, the embarkation point, but every emotional touchstone is, is, is touched in the meantime. It's a beautiful thing. Thanks, Sean. And the podcast tailwinders goes from strength to strength. Felix White, Feliz, Felix Navidad. <laughs> no one's ever said that to me before. That's going to be a thing from now on, and it's yeah. mine. <laughs> if anybody says that to you in the pub or anything, I apologise, because that might be my fault. Yes, look forward to it. Have you enjoyed it? Have you enjoyed oh, doing man, Felix I've Fest? Loved, I've really loved it, mate, and I wanted to catch up with you for a while, and that's... um. Gave me something nice to think about yesterday. Even the idea of dreaming up, because I haven't even thought about being at a festival. I've been sort of zoom, everything from the possibility of it for the last two years. So even the idea of like being with people and enjoying your favourite music was just a nice little pocket of time to live in last night. Oh, well, of course, I'm, I'm talking really to you. I didn't realise you were going to get out of me that Robert Elms kicked me off his show. You and Robert Elms, me and Wayne Coyne, uh, we're trying to impress people and we end up pissing them off also I didn't realise that with the whale's eyes thing was going to come up it wasn't the whale eye you were trying to catch all that it time was it was Elms. Robert Elms's. oh okay so that's how this festival ends the band come up then there's a spotlight on the sea and then Robert Elms surfaces and he goes and he goes get off of my fucking show and then he comes back down in the water and then it's good night everyone the Felix Navidad Festival closes. Um, listen, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, stay safe, and let's as soon as we're allowed again, let's get in a room and have a proper chat. I'd love to, mate. Felix White, you're a mate. Thank you very much for doing the lineup today. Thank you.